Well, communion is, uh, is a time where we are invited to focus our sights on our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, it's only right to do so, right? As Christians who have been wonderfully and in, in many senses even surprisingly saved by God, we count it as a, as a great privilege to be able to reflect back on, uh, on God's goodness, on God's amazing act of saving sinners. Even, even as we also, as we partake, as we start to feel the pain, that, that was the price of our salvation that Jesus had to bear. Well, as we've been waking our way through the Gospel of John, we've also been experiencing the wonder only of Jesus' life before he would die on the cross. We've noticed that he spoke many wonderful words. We've noticed that he did many incredible things. But all of those things were very purposefully and very intentionally leading him toward the cross. From the moment he was born, he, he lived 30 years sort of in relative silence, at least as far as the scriptures are concerned. But particularly in those last three years of his life, he was always thinking about the cross. Jesus knew the cross and the resurrection were ahead as what would be the culmination of his earthly life. The cross and the resurrection were the end for which he came. They were the end for which he was sent by the Father to accomplish the salvation of all those who would believe on him. Jesus, throughout his ministry, knew that was coming. Jesus knew what lay ahead. But in the days leading up to that, there in the outskirts of Jerusalem and, and even in the city itself, there was a lot of confusion and misunderstanding among the people. What Jesus knew in the eternal plan of the Trinity, and even what we can see now looking back, we have to remember was largely unknown to the people that happened to be around in that place in those days. That's what we find in John 12 at the beginning of the week of his crucifixion. Jesus at this point is rapidly gaining in popularity. He's the talk of the town. He's the talk of the area. He got there most recently because of something spectacular that he did. This is how he became popular. He, he brought a dead man named Lazarus to life. A man who was dead for four days. He was for sure dead. Everyone knew he was dead. A body that was already bandaged up and, and placed, as we would say today, was buried in a sealed tomb. Well, a number of people witnessed that man walking out of that tomb at the command of Jesus. A number of people that were there, and that news of that miracle spread quickly. It became kind of a sensation. And so everyone was looking to catch a glimpse of both this miracle worker and the previously dead man. Lazarus was a bit of a lightning rod. At the same time that people were clamoring to see him, just for interest's sake, there was another group that was clamoring to kill both Jesus and, as we found out last week in the verses just before the ones we'll look at today, they were looking to kill Lazarus as well. For those people, the rising popularity and the growing following of Jesus was becoming a very real threat to the existing Jewish religious and political power establishment there in Jerusalem. They were scared that 
that, that this was going to lead to a bit of an insurrection, that it would result in chaos, and that that would then incite the ruling Romans who would quickly squash the whole movement, and with it squash the sort of quasi-independence that the Jews enjoyed around that time. The Romans were always around. Their presence was always to be seen. But as long as things were peaceful, they never really bothered anyone too much. Never really bothered the Jews especially. Jews could carry on with their religion. religion, And as long as nothing was going crazy, the Romans were okay with that. So any attempt to rouse up trouble presented a bit of a threat to the religious groups of that day. Groups known as the Pharisees mostly and and also the, the chief priests who were made up of the, another group called the Sadducees. So those groups conspired to, and, and those groups didn't normally get along with one another, but at this point, they found something that would unite them. They found a cause that would unite them, and they started to actively look to arrest Jesus and kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Well, that was the human side of things. But at the same time, while that was going on, God was also working out his plan. And he's using both the the, the popularity of Jesus at that point and the opposition to Jesus as part of his divine timing where a savior was coming to die a sacrificial and atoning death in the place of sinners. And the human side intersecting with God's purposes becomes clearer in the section that we're going to look at today, this section that's associated normally with Palm Sunday. So if you haven't done it yet, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12, and I just encourage you to follow along as I read verses 12 to 19, and then just keep your Bibles open there as we'll walk through this passage together. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. As far as the reading of God's word. Our Father, we pray that you would now, through your spirit, help us to understand these things. Unlike the disciples who didn't understand at the time that that happened, Lord, we pray as your present day disciples that you would give us understanding through your spirit and help, and and we pray now that your spirit would then apply these things to our lives and help us to, to see how they would affect us even on this day and in the week and month and in our lives to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the increasing popularity is very clear here, isn't it, of Jesus? 
You've got the crowds coming basically from every direction to meet him. And there are actually two different crowds here. It just says the word crowds, and you, kind of, you might think those are the same groups of people. But there's a couple of different crowds. The first we might refer to as the, as the went to meet him crowd. You see those words in verses, verse 13 and then again in verse 18. They went to meet him or they went out to meet him. Where were these people coming from? Well, before this, Jesus was in a town called Bethany, which is where the miracle of Lazarus happened, which was just a few kilometers east of Jerusalem. But word got out that he was making his way into Jerusalem, into the city. This went out to meet him crowd likely came out from Jerusalem to meet him. They were made up of a whole bunch of, they weren't citizens of Jerusalem only, but they were made up of people, all sorts of people, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people that had come to Jerusalem for the feast, for the Passover feast that was about to happen. But when they heard Jesus was coming, they en masse went out to meet him. These people had heard about Jesus and Lazarus. They weren't there when the miracle happened, but they wanted to see what this Jesus was all about. And then there's another crowd. You see them in verse 17. This is the had been with him crowd. By that, it means that they had been with him when the miracle happened. They witnessed the miracle. They were, they were firsthand witnesses. They saw the whole thing. Verse 17 says, they continued to bear witness. These people would have been talking up the miracle. You won't believe what Jesus did. They'd have been saying, he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. It was incredible. You should have seen it. But here in these verses, those two crowds convene. The two crowds become one crowd, one massive crowd. One came with Jesus from Bethany, the other came to meet him from Jerusalem, and maybe through from the surrounding district as well. And it's this huge crowd, and like I said, some estimate it could have gone into the hundreds of thousands, just doing some, some estimates, looking at historical writings from that time, that met him on that first Palm Sunday. Verse 13 tells us why we call it Palm Sunday. They took branches of palm trees from some of the date palms that would have been around in those days, are still around today, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we'll look at those words in just a minute, but that gives you a sense of the popularity of Jesus. But I also mentioned the opposition to Jesus that's sort of lingering in the shadows here in this part. Looking, as we learned in chapter 11, verse 57, for an opportunity to arrest Jesus. They show up here, too, down in the very last sentence that I read, down in verse 19. Well, that's what's going on there in Jerusalem. That's, what, that's the part that's observable from our human vantage point. But like I said, God is working in this scene, too. Maybe behind the scenes. His timing and his action is in behind all of these events. All of this is coming together to bring Jesus to the place where he would die. And Jesus knows it. And in this scene, we start to see a little bit, see all of that a little bit more clearly. That Jesus is purposely orchestrating things so that he will, in fact, be led to the cross and eventually to die. That's the thing about Jesus' death. It's, it, it's not just a sad outcome. 
to what looked even here to be so promising. Jesus knew full well that he had come to die, and he willingly did that in obedience to the Father and in an amazing act of love for his people. We are right to sing when we do amazing love. And then we're right to ask right after that, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So we'll see in this scene, Jesus' very intentional and purposeful movement toward Jerusalem and toward his eventual arrest and crucifixion. But we're also going to notice the human side through the people in this scene. The crowds, the disciples, and the Pharisees. So look at the reaction of the large crowd that's mentioned there in verse 12. They, they hear that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and they, and they kind of have a, an, an impromptu coronation for this king. This is the Palestinian red carpet treatment. They sing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, those words aren't actually original to them. They're, they're right out of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, which was something that was sung by Jews whenever they'd celebrate a victory of some kind. And they themselves there add another line to Psalm 118, even the king of Israel. So they are here proclaiming Jesus as king. They, they make him out to be some kind of conquering national hero. All their hopes, they think, are all their nationalistic hopes for the nation of Israel are met, they think, in this Jesus, this one who has performed this amazing miracle. So this is just mass enthusiasm here. It's almost a kind of hysteria. It had risen up pretty suddenly. What started as a miracle in a small town has very quickly, in a few days, become an event where this miracle worker has become the great Jewish messianic hope. And we look at that from the other side now, and we have to think to ourselves, we can, we can all be like that, right? We're, we're very impulsive, and we can very quickly and easily be convinced to buy into something, especially if everyone else is doing it, and if it has some measure of success. This week, the flavor of the month is Tom Brady, the quarterback for the New England Patriots. Listen to how one article talked about him this week. Brady has been the chief apostle of the Patriot way. Fans have bought in with near-religious devotion. And then this. Brady is a kind of Messiah figure for a lot of Patriots fans. Interesting, isn't it? We can, be, we can very quickly be convinced when something works and when someone grows in fame or popularity. We're fickle that way. And this crowd was too. But notice here that Jesus doesn't really stop the crowd or even dispute their notions at this point. That's very interesting. Jesus could have said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not the king that, you think of, that you're thinking of. And that's important because before this, he would always try to steer away from that kind of a claim. For example, back in John chapter 6, in the incident after he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, they said the, the same sort of thing. But when Jesus saw that and he heard that, it says in John 6 verse 15 that he withdrew to a mountain by himself. He didn't want any part of their acclaim. 
at that point. But here, something had changed. He, he actually accepted it and welcomed it. But like we see in the next verse, he's going to do it on his own terms. He is indeed the king, but not in the way that the people understood or expected. Verse 14, and Jesus found, notice he initiates it here, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And with this, the whole scene turns. And here's where I believe the enthusiasm starts to wane and eventually turns into outright opposition as some of these same crowds, by the end of the week, change from cries of Hosanna to shouts of crucify him. You see, what Jesus did here would have shocked the huge crowds. It was the last thing that they would have expected. At this point, it's likely left them dumbfounded. It left even the disciples dumbfounded. Why? Because a conquering king normally would come into town on a white horse, not on a donkey, and definitely not on a donkey's colt. This would be like an adult riding in on a tricycle or a bike with training wheels. Donkeys in Palestine were a lot smaller than the donkeys that we see around here, and a donkey's colt would obviously be smaller yet. One book I read said that for an adult to get onto a baby donkey back then, they'd actually have to bend their knees just so that their legs wouldn't touch the ground. Kind of like riding a tricycle. Well, that's what Jesus did. He didn't deny them calling him the king of Israel, but he threw them for a loop when he came riding in on a donkey's colt. So what was Jesus doing? Well, a few things to note. First, he was a king, and he will one day come on a white horse. He will. If you want to know how I know that, it's in Revelation 19, verse 11. But not now. You might remember that just a few days later, this whole idea of being the king of the Jews is, is something that the Romans mocked Jesus and the Jews about. Pilate marched the beaten and, and, and bloodied Jesus out in front of the Jews and said, Behold, your king. Here he is. Look at him. And then he had those words put, a, put on a sign on top of the cross, King of the Jews. And you remember, the Jews wanted to, to change the, the, the sign to, wanted Pilate to change it to, This man said, I'm the king of the Jews. Meaning, he's just saying that. He really wasn't. And for them, he certainly wasn't. But at this point, Jesus is coming in humility. He's coming, as he describes himself in Matthew eleven twenty-nine 29, as gentle and lowly in heart. He's coming as the Prince of Peace. That scene of Jesus on a baby donkey would have given the huge pro-Jewish crowd a jolt. It would have messed with their minds. It would have produced a collective and mass, what? What is he doing? But remember, this was initiated by Jesus. Look what it says. It says, he found a donkey 
and sat on it. See, Jesus had a totally different agenda than the expectation of this large crowd. Then, notice what it says right after that, at the very end of verse 14, five words, just as it is written. Is that five? Yeah. And then it, and then it gives those words from Zechariah 9, verse 9, that, that Stuart read for us before. You see, Jesus was not swayed by popularity. The, the fact that all these crowds were surrounding him and flocking to him as if he was a rock star and, and hailing him as a king did not have Jesus altering one bit from his purpose. You might think that Jesus was tempted to just soak in all this attention and, and acclaim. And maybe he was tempted to some degree. We, we don't know. We do know, Hebrews tells us, that as a man he was tempted in every way, even as we are. But Jesus was concerned about God's agenda, and that's what was decisive for him. Jesus was fulfilling a prophecy. Jesus was obeying God's word. Jesus was always interested in the will of God. We could say he was compelled by the will of God, not by the acclaim and praise of men. So what do we make of this for ourselves? Are there lessons that we can learn today from this scene? I just want to very quickly have us think about the four different vantage points that are presented here. First, there's Jesus. Jesus, as we, saw, uh, as we saw, was motivated in this scene totally by his impending death. He knows that this is why he came. This is why the Father sent him. This was his plan, the Father's plan, the, the, the plan of the Trinity, the triune God from eternity past. And this is his moment. All of that stuff that's going on around him are only the circumstances that would get him there. For him, it matters what was written. He was out to please the Father by doing his will. And the Father's will was to redeem and save his people. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Through Jesus, and through Jesus' unwavering resolve to go to his own death, we see God's amazing love for sinners. I hope you see that in this scene. If you're a Christian, this is what the Passover meal and, and, and then the Lord's Supper is all about. Jesus is that spotless lamb. Behold the lamb of God. Jesus is that spotless lamb that was sacrificed in the place of sinners. In this scene, we behold again the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you happen to be here today and have not trusted in Christ alone to save you from the penalty of your sins, this would be a good time to do that. Repent and believe Christ. You know, that's, that's why John actually wrote this gospel. So that people would see Christ, they would behold Christ, and that they would then believe that Jesus is the Christ, as he says in John 20, verse 31, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name, that you might have eternal life. But that's Jesus. There's also the human actors, the human players in this scene. Verse 16 brings the disciples into the scene. After Jesus comes in on a donkey's colt, it says his disciples did not understand these things at first. 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written. There's those words again. That these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Here's one human response. They didn't understand now, but they understood later. They didn't understand until he was died and was raised. That's what uh, he was glorified means. But then it all came to them. What was the difference later? Well, one thing. They had the Holy Spirit then. John 14, 26, just a little later, a couple of days later, Jesus gathers all the disciples in the upper room and he says this. He says this to these same disciples that didn't understand here. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and listen, he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The disciples would understand once Jesus was glorified. My Christian brothers and sisters, this is what it's like for us. Once we're saved, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit teaches us things that we would not otherwise know. He helps us to remember all that Jesus said. He helps us to know God's Word. In other words, when we're saved, we, we are given a renewed mind. We can understand spiritual things. What once were puzzles and mysteries, we can now peer into those things. Where once we were darkened in our understanding, as it says in Ephesians 4, now through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit, we see and understand spiritual truth. This is a glorious thing. What a privilege it is to be saved by God the Father, to be united with God the Son in his death and in his resurrection, and now to be indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, our helper and our comforter. The disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered. So we have Jesus opening up verses 14 and 15. We have the disciples opening verse 16. Then thirdly, in verse 17, it starts with the third actor in this event, or the third actors, the crowd. We see here that they are thrill-seekers at best, fickle at worst, like I already said. Their motives are exposed there in verse 18. It says it right in black and white, right? The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. They're only there, they're only gathering around him because of this Lazarus thing. But just like the disciples, they're dumbfounded when Jesus jumps up on top of a baby donkey. That totally dashed their hopes of who this was. It turned out that he wasn't who they thought. This Jesus on a donkey business quickly transforms their affections. They were all set to follow this conquering Messiah, but when he sat on a donkey, it wasn't long before they changed their allegiance from Jesus to the religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus. They went from Hosanna, like I said, to crucify him in a matter of days. When Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they just moved on. There was no loyalty at all. A humble, meek, lowly, despised, beaten, rejected Jesus did not meet with their approval. They were after a savior of their own making. Are you prepared to follow a Jesus who went to the cross? 
Are you prepared to follow a Jesus who says that in order to do that, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross and follow him? Or do you want no part of that kind of Jesus? Maybe you want that Jesus is going to give me the easy life, Jesus. Or some other self-made version of a Messiah. I encourage you to follow Christ, the crucified, the resurrected, the exalted Christ, the one who is coming again. You will not regret it. The fourth group starts the very last verse, verse 19, the Pharisees. They are the plodding, interested, but frustrated onlookers, bystanders, to this amazing entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. They're watching all this and in their exasperation say, say to themselves, it says here, to paraphrase, we're not making any headway in arresting Jesus, are we? Check it out. It seems like the whole world is following him. Well, we know that their frustration wouldn't last. They wouldn't be frustrated for too much longer. The mob disappears and eventually the Pharisees get their guy. But these Pharisees are saying here way more than they realize when they say the world has gone after him. God is working in even their words, the words of the opposition. You see, through the death of Jesus, that thing that they wanted so badly, that thing that God wanted, through the death of Jesus, people throughout the whole world would go after him. They would follow Jesus again through his death. This, my brothers and sisters, is the great hope for the world. It's this unintentional promise and prophecy set in complete frustration and exasperation that compels us to tell the world and the nations and the people that walk around us every day about this, about this Jesus. God will use our words about Jesus to see to it that people would go after him and that people would worship him him so the lesson for us here even in this scene is let's do our part let's do what the resurrected Jesus told his disciples just before he went and ascended back up into heaven let's go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded And there's a great promise attached to that because we sometimes get fearful of doing that, right? But the promise at the end is, and his, is that, behold, this is from Jesus himself, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God will join with us as we seek to be his ambassadors. Christ will be there with us. What an encouragement that is. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we, we have so many reasons, even our worship together today, to praise you and to bless you. And we particularly bless the one who has come in the name of the Lord, the one who not only marched into Jerusalem in humility, but the one who went to the cross the one who, 
who purchased our salvation with his blood. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for giving us eyes to see and and, and ears to hear and minds to be able to comprehend and to understand the things that Jesus said and taught. We thank you for your spirit who teaches us all things and who helps us to remember these great and glorious truths. May we be faithful to follow Christ and then may we be faithful to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.